0: Good morning. It is really good to be with you today. If you'll grab your Bible, we'll be camping today in a couple of different passages of scripture that I think will be helpful to us. I'm actually setting my clock here so I can see it and keep up with the time. I want to test my little pointer here and make sure that it's uh, working. Let's see what we've got. On, on works better. There we go. Okay, so here we go. Um, What I want to do this morning is talk to you about discipleship. Uh, I know that Wes has been sharing with you. The privilege of standing here in front of you and sharing with you as a church is a great honor for me. It's a great honor for my wife to be here with me. We had such a nice fellowship yesterday with Wes and Meyer and the kids, and then a relaxing evening last night and a good night of sleep. Uh, It was just a blessing from God to be able to be here. So thank you. Thank you for the hospitality that you've extended to us. We don't miss that churches who are generous are so good to folks who come in and spend time with them. So thank you. Uh, Our goal this morning is to kind of. give you some uh, diagnostics about discipleship, move from there into some things that should provoke our thinking about discipleship, and then in the sermon to drill down into one text that I think is one of the best discipleship texts in the New Testament and work from that text into some application of some things that each of us ought to be doing. So beginning, I want to kind of give a shout out to someone who's had a lot of influence on my discipleship thinking recently, and that is JT English. If you don't own this book, it's a great book to put in your collection. Several of the things that we'll talk about today come from a reading of his book. So We're going to break this into three parts. We're going to talk about the disease of lack of discipleship that exists within churches. Then we're going to talk about a proper diagnosis, how some of the problems of churches have been misdiagnosed, and then what a proper diagnosis of the contemporary church might be not taking into our minds every single thing that churches might be challenged with but some general principles and then from there we're going to talk about discipleship itself and what that looks like so let's start with the disease of lack of discipleship let's hit some symptoms of what's going on the first thing that we notice is the tendency of churches to get to a place of plateauing and then moving into a place of decline. When you look across the United States, a great number of our churches are either plateaued. In other words, there's as many people exiting as entering or they're keeping what they have and fewer entering. Or they're at a place where more folks are exiting than entering. And we have a lot of students who grow up in our churches. They go off to college and then through some things that they experience, they decide to disengage from the church. Some of them is it's it's like leaving the faith genuinely. Others it's just they're just disengaging not for any definite or particular reason. And so as a result, we're starting to see a great amount of departure among folks that ought to have been well-trained and have cause to stay in the church. And then from there, we've seen inside church lots and lots of division. The politics of the world have Sort of worked their way into the church and a lot of personal preference has gotten involved in church in such a way that we often fight over things that aren't at the level of importance of a good fight there's probably some things to have a good wrestling with a good heated discussion over but typically those aren't the things that we get into and then there has been a developing disinterest in church people seem to be interested more in sports or economics or politics or work or entertainment or vacation or t-ball or whatever the thing is and so the interest in church seems to be declining now when we think about diagnosing those problems we sit around have coffee and we say what what do you think's wrong and we start having these discussions about how do churches get to the place where they decline how do they get to the place where people are departing how do they get to the place where there's division in the ranks how do they get to the place where there's disinterest in the things of god and so a lot of times we start trying to diagnose it and we tend toward the problem of misdiagnosis Now, if you've ever been to the doctor for anything, a misdiagnosis can become a critical issue. It could be a small issue. You could just have a sinus infection, and they miss that you have a sinus infection, and then later it kind of shows on up, and they, they figure it out. Or it could be cancer in hiding that's growing, and they miss it, and it could be more crucial. Well, I think part of the problem with the church is that we are misdiagnosing some of these problems that we've seen in the north american church and i mention the north american church because that's where i live and i have the best understanding of i know that there's lots of problems globally as well one of the things we are hearing is inside the church is that folks are saying well you know doctrine is irrelevant we really need to focus on the relationships so if we'll just kind of Move the doctrine off to the side and really focus on the relationships. Perhaps that will fix what's wrong. Maybe our expectations are too high. Maybe we just expect too much of people. And maybe if we would just lower our expectations so that people feel very casual about being here and about the idea of Christianity, perhaps we've gotten too deep and we spend too much time in the Bible digging around in the treasures of god's word and maybe that's boring people or maybe that's uh, turning them away or perhaps the competition is too fierce maybe t-ball is more exciting and maybe travel ball is more inviting and maybe the bars and the nightclubs and maybe the home church watching it on television is more comfortable maybe the competition is just too fierce we can't stand up under it yesterday we arrived in baton rouge and uh we stayed in the hyatt and right there by the mall and I noticed that Ralph and Kaku's was closed and I thought, are you kidding? They used to be the standard of good Louisiana seafood. I remember living in New Orleans and it was just the highlight if you could save up enough money to go and have a meal at Ralph and Kaku's as a seminary student that was a really big deal and my mom was crazy about it but somehow their competition really did get too fierce and Whatever happened put them out of business, and that was a really hard thing to see. And so I think maybe the church has a little bit of a consumer mindset, and, and we're thinking more in terms of the competition. Maybe maybe it's just too strong for us. We can't stand up to all that the world has to offer. And so as a result, because of misdiagnosis, churches may tend to ask people to come and earn a participation award. Now that's become popular after I was a kid. When I was a kid, you didn't get a trophy if your team didn't win. If your team was not the winning team, they weren't handing out trophies. The trophies were for the number one top team, the number two, the runner up, and then occasionally number three might get something, and all the rest of the team stood around and just looked. Now if you play, you get a trophy. And so there's this idea that participating is the same thing as succeeding. Maybe because of misdiagnosis, churches in bringing down the expectations and bringing down the doctrine and bringing down the, the, the idea of teaching the word and bringing up what's just got to be about relationships. Maybe that'll be it. And we end up kind of like literally giving out participation awards to everyone who played as if that's all you do is come and play. But Jesus invites them to come and to deny their own selves, to take up their cross, and to follow him. So I've come to believe that I think what we're suffering from is spiritual sciatica. Now, how many of you have ever had sciatica? Be honest. It's an ugly thing. I've had it. It is a very ugly thing. Now, the strange thing is sciatica is very, very deceptive. Like, when I have sciatica, my leg and my knee hurt terribly. They're just incredibly painful. And it aches and aches. I can't sleep when I have it. When I'm sitting and driving, I can't find a comfortable position. And all the pain is in my leg. But if the doctor went to work on my leg, those of you who have sciatica, how much is going to be accomplished? Well, if you've ever seen the picture, the problem's in your back or your hip. It's not in your leg. And so what happens is you go to work on the leg. You get some icy hot, all right, and you go to work on that, and, and you work that down, or you've got that whatever newfangled thing they're pushing on television for pain relief, and, and you keep saying, well, I think I get a little relief, but I don't get any relief. And then the doctor will tell you the problem is not in your leg problems either in your hip that the nerves pinch there or it's in your back that the nerves pinch there that's where the problem is But here's the deal I think that if we misdiagnose the problem with discipleship we will spend our time and energy on the wrong place and in the wrong things and that takes up resources and time and focus and it steals away the opportunity to go to work on the things that we ought to. And so if we misdiagnose, if we begin to think that the gospel and the depths of the mysteries of God are irrelevant, if we begin to think that the expectations that Jesus gives clearly are too high, that we've gotten too deep in probing the riches of the mystery of Christ, Or if we think we're too weak to face up to t-ball, then we've misdiagnosed and we're likely going to work our time, energy, and resources in the wrong place. And that will lead to more trouble down the road. So let's talk about some proper diagnoses. And these are from J.T. English's book and some other research that we've done Let's begin with this primary one. I believe that this is the top one, glory hidden. Now imagine you're getting your kids ready to go to somewhere like Disney World. I don't know what your thing is. Some people's thing is Disney World, some people's thing is the mountains, some people's thing is the beach, some go out to the, what is it, Lone Wolf Lodge or whatever that is forget the name of it. There's lots of things that you're thinking. Now, imagine you've got got small kids. This happened to us. We were going to take my two girls, by a gift from my family after Katrina, to Disney World. And this was a big deal. They had never been. Sherry and I went during our honeymoon. And our girls were, I think, 9 and 12 at the time more or less, and it was a great time for them to go and enjoy. My family paid for a full week there along with a full week on the beach in Destin on the way there. So two weeks is awesome. Imagine that I approached it like this. I sat down with my girls and I said to them, Now, Laney and Laurel, we're about to go on a trip. And here's the deal. You've got to spend about 13 hours in seatbelts. The ride is going to be long and hot and boring. You're going to have to behave the whole time. There's only going to be a few bathroom stops. Dad's going to be stressed out from driving. Mom's not going to enjoy trying to keep you guys in your seats the whole time for 13 hours. But it's going to be fun. Imagine that that's how we pictured it. The girls really wouldn't be very excited about this trip because we just described it as a mood and as a bunch of rules. I think part of Christianity's problem is that that's how we've been describing Jesus rather than describing the glories of who he is. If you could have come to my house when we were getting ready to go to Disney World, I want to tell you, all we talked about was the mouse. We're going to see the mouse. That's my family saying, we're going to go see the mouse. And it is an enchanted land. Your mom and I went there On our honeymoon, it is one of the most fun places we've ever been. They've got all these food exhibitions and places you can go and things to do. Everything's paid for. It's totally, we don't have to pay a single thing. It's going to be the most fun that our families probably ever had in one week. Then we're going to spend a whole week on the beaches of Destin where the water is like emerald blue and the sand is white. And you can look out and you can see fish swimming in the waves, and we'll eat seafood at night to your heart's content. That's a real different picture. Because we're sharing the glories of something rather than all the rules and regulations and all the stipulations. And I believe part of our challenge has been that we have not really manifested to our people, our children, our families, our disciples, the glories of Jesus. Jesus describes when he shows up and establishes his kingdom, he says, when the Son of Man comes in all his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So he comes in all of his glory and he's going to sit on his glorious throne. When is the last time you talked about that kind of glory with anyone? It's going to be so awe-inspiring, breathtaking. Nothing we've ever seen, done, or beheld will even have close comparison. It's going to be amazing. Breathtaking. It's a face plant. You're going to fall on your face in the presence of this glory. I think what's happened is what happens with art. I, I don't know if y'all watch restoration shows, but I love restoration shows of old artifacts, toys, and art. I just love it. The Fix-It shop that they play uh, from, from uh, England is one of my favorite shows. And I love when they clean up art and you begin to see the beauty Of the original. Part of the job of the church. Is to begin to peel away. The layers of things. In our lives. And in our churches. That hide the glory. Of Jesus. From the people. That we want to reach. And from the people that we disciple. To make known. The riches of the glory of Christ. This job is a very toilsome, careful job. If you use the wrong materials, you strip away the original and ruin the picture. You see, getting things right in discipleship isn't simply some mechanism that we install into the church and make things. It is an attitude and desire in our hearts to behold God. The glory of Christ. And then to communicate that to others. And that takes work. And time. And carefulness. And just as this restoration of this painting. Piece by piece. Millimeter by millimeter. Begins to show the glory of the original painting. Underneath. Look at the white dress beneath what was all brown and the glory of the beauty of that original painting. Look at the glimmer in her eye in that bright spot, and the beauty of what her skin looked like. You see that because it's there to be seen, but we have to work to uncover what has been done to hide it. And so part of our job in discipleship is working really hard to want to see the glory of Christ personally and then to show that glory through our work we see the word became flesh and dwelt among us we observed his glory the glory as of the one and only from the father full of grace and truth but when we're not working rightly to display the glory of Christ and we let things like traditions Or we let things like the things of the world and busyness and haphazard theology. When we let those things get in the way, here's what we do. We end up working for the wrong entity. Notice what Satan wants to do with the glory of Christ. He wants to veil it. That's what he's doing in the world. But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. When we're sharing the gospel, we're unveiling the glory of Christ. That's what we're doing. We're working back these layers of how people have thought Christ looked and how church looked and how devotion looked, and how eternity looked. We're working away those things that are hiding the beautiful details of who Christ is. So our job is to work hard to make this revelation. I have to hustle to get through what I want to cover today. So, second diagnosis that's proper is that discipleship has been too shallow. Now, I don't know if you've thought this through, but how many years of ministry did Jesus have on earth? Three. Everybody kind of pretty much agrees, more or less three years. What was the one thing he spent those three years doing? Making disciples. So when God comes to earth and spends three years, God the Son, second person of the Holy Trinity, takes on flesh and blood, lives these 30 years of preparation, and then gets three years of ministry, he devotes his three years to this task. Making disciples. It's not the only thing he did, but it's the primary thing other than the atonement that he did. And So if it was worth Jesus' time and focus and his energy and his, his very pointed um, uh, declarations, then we don't have time for shallow discipleship. We are called to tell things exactly that Jesus said. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. That's not shallow, my brothers and sisters. That's profound. This is Jesus looking right at you and saying, there's only one way of discipleship. It's the way of self-sacrifice and self-denial but the glory that you're going to behold is worth it also i believe that we have in our expectations of what it means to be called a christian we have lowered those down to a point to where those expectations have to do with some some really easily followed things like attending church or giving a tithe or participating in a missions activity. Now, I'm for all those things. I know you are too. But the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witness and every other world religion has similar kinds of expectations country clubs ball teams schools they have similar kinds of expectations there is a kind of expectation in christianity where jesus says it's all in you remember the discussion between the rich young ruler and jesus he asked him about the commands and he said i've kept all these He said, what do I steal that? He said, if you want to be perfect, Jesus said to him, go and sell all your belongings and give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And when the man heard that, he was grieving. Because he had many possessions. But Jesus doesn't say the same thing about things to everyone. But he says the same thing to everyone. Take up your cross. So it's an all in kind of movement where the expectations are full commitment, life to Christ. In fact, Jesus said very strong statement in the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. In this moment, he didn't tell him to give it away. He just said, you have to just lay claim of ownership off of your stuff and give that claim of ownership to God. You have to renounce that it all belongs to Him. It, it, it renounce, renounce the idea that it all belongs to you and announce that it all belongs to Him. And so these expectations are, are very high. Finally, one of the challenges that we have fallen into is that we've worked ourselves in churches into what we call a, a consumer strategy. Most churches are vying to be popular to bring in the people who already want to come. I want you to think that through for a minute. In other words, there's a set of consumers out there in our community who already want to go to church. And what do we want to do? Well, we want to be better than the church down the road, so we'll get them. And maybe they'll come here from that church if we'll offer them something that that other church doesn't offer or do it in a better way. And churches begin to compete with each other I love, we have a thing called the Tri-Church Thanksgiving Service at our church. We haven't done it since COVID, but before that, three of the larger churches in our area would get together and we would celebrate Thanksgiving together. And we would, one church would host, the other church would provide music, the other one would provide the meal, and the other one would provide the preacher. And then we would rotate that around the churches. And Stuart Holloway, who's pastor of First Baptist Pineville, said a very bold thing to the three largest churches in our area when he gathered together between these three churches and he looked at the crowd that was there that day and he said, if everybody here would tell the truth, most everybody in this room has been a member at some point in all three of our churches. And it was true. Because those three churches have kind of vied for the available personnel in the community. That's not really a great thing to be known for. Jesus wasn't trying to shift one group of disciples to another. He was making disciples, and and so we end up making an error if we build our strategy as a competition for consumers so that we're offering things to get people and lure them from other churches. In fact, this is what will happen if we develop that mindset. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, they will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. Now, before you jump on that too quick, this is true of all of us. It's just how it is. We play the music we want to play when we get in our car because we want to hear what we want to hear. Somebody gets in, changes the radio station in your car, what do you do? You're like, what are you doing? And, and this really works out well between teens and adults. <laughs> I was kind of that dad that um, my kids were always saying, turn the music down, dad. Um, my daughter, Laurel, doesn't like it loud. Now my daughter, L- Lainey, does like it loud. Uh, Sherry doesn't like it loud. Uh, but I was, uh, when, when you get in my car, and I'm the only one been in the car, and you crank it up, if my phone is in the car, it automatically connects, and it's usually like on about eight. It's very loud, and... Things that my rest of my family doesn't enjoy listening to. And then they want to change it. I want to listen to this. I'm like, no, this is my car. I want to listen to these things. We have a fundamental desire to hear what we want to hear. Please don't think that that doesn't leak into your doctrine. It, it does. And it's true. And if we will admit it, it's, it's a good thing. It's why we choose certain channels that we watch on television. Because we want to hear what we want to hear. And we tend to want to hear what we are already disposed to and agree with. Jesus said so many things that were really hard for us. And so, in fact, if you look at him here, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. In other words, that's not a consumer strategy. He said the consumers are going the broad way. The people who just want what they want, They just follow their heart that they're going to that road. But the ones who want to go to life, they're going to the narrow gate and they're enduring the narrow way because it leads to life. So when we talk about discipleship, we have to talk about some fundamental verses. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through 20 is probably one of the most fundamental. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Another verse that I love, and this is the one we will dig into in the sermon today. We proclaim Jesus warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. Now, I want to give you a couple of J.T. English quotes that I think are helpful. So, let me walk through just a couple of those. In order for the church to grow and develop a vision for deep discipleship, we have to start with the why behind the what. And this is very important. For us to make disciples, we have to ask, why? Why expend the energy, the time, the focus, the resources, the personnel? Why? So we have to dig down into that. and Then he summarizes what it ought to lead to. Discipleship, then, is about a redirection of our loves to the one who is loved. In other words, the goal of discipleship is to unveil the glory of Christ in such a way that people desire to behold His glory. They want to see Him. They long for His presence. They rejoice in His sacrifice. They serve at His command. They desire His pleasure. They want To love the one who is lovely. So JT English goes on to say this. When thought of this way, discipleship is not just a program, but a total reorientation to reality. Now, this quote is important. If you want to write a quote, take your phone and take a picture of a quote or let Wes know and I'll email this whole presentation to you. Notice he doesn't say a reorientation to another reality or a new reality. My brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is the only reality. The entire universe exists for Him, and through Him, and to Him. He is reality. The reason the earth is the earth, and the stars, the stars, and Jupiter is where it is in the night sky, is because that pleases Jesus, and gives glory to his Father through him. Jesus is reality. And so JT makes a really good statement here. Jesus is reality. He is the only reality. All others are not realities. They're deceptions. But Jesus, at his name, the Bible says, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. On the day he returns, he will return in his glory and sit on his throne of glory. And he will separate the peoples as the sheep and goats are separated. This is reality. And all of eternity is premised on the reality of Jesus. So discipleship for us is... Getting folks to a place where they begin to behold the glory of Jesus and desire that glory and His presence. It's a labor of focus, not on the church. The church is important, right, of Christ. But on Christ Himself. Now, JT says two statements here that are keepers. The first one is... One of my greatest fears as a pastor is the idea that people may be satisfied with the church, but bored with Jesus. Now, I can tell you I've been there. I have. And if we can make candid admissions about it, it'll help us. I've been there. I've been to the Bored With Jesus station of life. And it's a horrible place to be. It's almost depressing. But here... The idea is that we're not trying to build a church so that people will be satisfied with church, but they'll be desirous of the glory of Christ himself. He says also, it terrifies me that people may enjoy the sermon, participate in small group ministries, volunteer on one of our many teams, and be completely satisfied with their experience, yet be spiritually apathetic toward the person and work of." In other words, are, are you aware that we can do church very well mechanically while ignoring its entire purpose for existence? That's possible. And the only way to fix that isn't to bring in some kind of master plan of discipleship. It is to build a kind of discipleship that brings attention and focus to Christ and His work so that we may be pleased to see his glory. When I preached at the pulpit in Elysian Fields Avenue Baptist Church in New Orleans, there was a little plaque that was on there that said, we would see Jesus. And it was a quote, of course, from the King James of the folks who were wanting to see Christ. And they said, we would see Jesus. It's the idea of that's who we desire to see. And it was a reminder when we spoke that that's who should be displayed is Christ. So let's talk just a couple of minutes about where discipleship should occur. I think we know this one, but it's the local church. Now, groups like the Navigators and Campus Crusade for Christ and so many other organizations that are often referred to as parachurch organizations they're great but the church is the place discipleship should occur the local church is the visible and situated place adopted family of god people that is being equipped for mission and christ likeness purpose through the indwelling and empowering ministry of the holy spirit god's presence So what I want to do is I want to give you a hint of what I'm talking about. I'm going to do it quickly, but maybe it can lay some groundwork for your thought process about, okay, how how would I like to make disciples? So how did Matthew seek to follow the call to make disciples? When you read Matthew 28, 18 through 20, you're reading a quote at the end of his book that the whole book was written to accomplish. You see, Matthew wrote the book to make disciples. And therefore, when you read the book of Matthew, there's a pretty good strategy revealed and we broke it down at Kingsville into basically three parts of understanding why we do it and based on Matthew, the first thing that Matthew does when he starts his gospel is he spends four chapters before Jesus calls any disciples, he spends four chapters explaining why Jesus is worthy. We're going to touch on that in just a minute. And so, Jesus is worthy. Second thing that Matthew is going to make us understand through Jesus' teaching is that the journey of following Jesus is worth it. This thing called discipleship, where we follow Jesus, where we enter the narrow gate and we go through the, the very difficult path, it's worth it because of what it leads to. It leads to life. It leads to the presence of God among his people for all of eternity. And so Matthew starts the book by saying Jesus is worthy. And then he begins to show all the ways that Jesus explains that the journey is worth it. Almost every single parable that Jesus tells has some concept of reward built into. Because that's what makes the journey worth it, is the reward at the end. And the reward that we receive is Christ himself. God is the gospel. The gift that God has given you through the gospel is himself. And then finally, that the job is worthwhile. So I think of discipleship in in three ways. Jesus and his worthiness. The journey that is worth it. And the job of making disciples that is worthwhile. So at our church, the thing we try to say to ourselves is this. We make disciples because Jesus is worthy. Because the journey is worth it. And because the job is worthwhile. That's what we preach to ourselves about our our task of discipleship. Now, I'm going to give you just a flavor of that in Matthew. When Matthew writes his gospel, you've got four chapters before a single disciple is called, midway or toward the end of chapter 4. And those four chapters are packed with the doctrine of the glory of Christ. In other words, what Matthew is going to do is he's going to reveal to you the glory of the Messiah. And he does it initially three ways. He first invites us to behold Jesus. He invites us to behold him as king. When he introduces Jesus to us over and over and over again, look at Matthew chapter 1, just open your Bible, and just if you read chapter 1 and chapter 2 over and over again, what you're going to hear is the word Christ. Matthew's going to say, here's the king. King is here. The long-awaited king. The king who's going to be the fulfillment of Abraham. He's going to be the one who sits on the throne of David. This is the king. He is the one. And so he calls him at the birth, the birth of Jesus the king, the anointed, the Messiah, came about this way. So what's Matthew going to do? He opens his gospel with saying, you know what you guys need to see? The glory of Jesus. He's He's the long-awaited king. I love in Lord of the Rings when the king is finally revealed. And there's that moment he's behind these banners and the banners open and the king is there. And it always gives me this little chill of the moment. Listen, my brothers and sisters, the king is going to be revealed. And there's nothing in your life that you've ever experienced that's even come close to that moment. Nothing. Nothing. And so the birth of Jesus, the king, and so he wants you to behold Jesus as king. Let me hustle through this. He wants you also to behold him as savior. We sing these beautiful songs at Christmas about the world in darkness lay. And we forget that that's a picture of every one of our hearts prior to the glory of Christ. Being revealed, the veil is over our hearts. The God of this world has blinded our minds in unbelief. And then God opens up and gives us a hint of the glory of Christ. And we behold Him and we say, Yes, Lord Jesus, I cannot help but follow You. You are so glorious. And that's just a hint of Him as Savior. She will give birth to a son, you're to name Him Jesus, because He will save His people from their sins. And so Matthew, in writing his gospel, says, you guys want to know why I followed him? Well, I want you to look at him. He is the long-awaited king. He is the much-needed savior. But then Matthew drops the bomb. He wants us to behold Jesus as God. He's going to tell us in the Bible that the Holy Spirit is the Father of Jesus, making him God. And that he's going to be called the Savior of his people, which is a quote from Isaiah when it says he will save his people. Been conceived of the Holy Spirit, save his people. So the idea of his people is a quote from Isaiah. Where God saves his people. He is in the place of God here. And then we're going to call him God with us. So what's Matthew doing in his gospel? He's making disciples. And the first thing he tells his disciples that he's writing to. The first thing he tells the world that he wants to disciple. Is he says, I want you to behold Jesus. The long awaited king. The much needed savior. And the un." compromised God of the world. So he begins his discipling in his book by doing the very thing we need to do in discipling. And that is to reveal Jesus to people in the true form of who he is. He is the long-awaited king right now. He sits at the right hand of his father with all authority, and he is the ruler of the universe right now he's not going to become king he is the king and he is enthroned and exalted in one day every knee shall bow and tongue will confess we'll see it and know it and so we'll end up saying this statement jesus christ is lord that was the statement of the early church affirming the divinity of jesus the salvation of jesus and the kingship of jesus That was the way the early church reminded herself of who Jesus is in all his glory. So from that, he invites us to believe in Jesus. He says, I want you to behold him as he is, but now I want you to believe in him. And he gives an instance with Joseph having to believe. Joseph had to believe that this was the long-awaited Messiah. This was born of God. This was the Holy Spirit as Father. This was a miracle of the Messiah. Joseph had to believe. And Matthew is going to encourage others to believe. And Matthew is going to say, this is why we all followed him. When we get to chapter 4 and Jesus comes on the scene and begins to reveal himself. This is why we followed him unto the death. Because we believe in him. And then finally... He he invites us to belong to Jesus. Notice this verse, save his people. Who? I, I, for some reason, this didn't come through. Uh, it should be highlighted there, his people, because he will save his people. If we belong to Jesus, we are a part of his people. Now, I want you to think for just a second. We've covered this idea of discipleship. Talked about some diagnoses, misdiagnoses, proper diagnosis. And the top thing that we said is that the glory has been hidden. And that if we can get back to discipling that brings people to see the glory of Jesus, that's our task. Then Matthew gives us a great picture of doing that by saying, hey, let me show you. I'll start with behold him. He's the king. Behold him. He's the savior. Oh, behold him. They present Jesus, he presents Jesus in this absolutely beautiful way. I'm going to finish with some things that we did at our church. I'm going to hustle through them and bring us to an end. We've got about four or five minutes. Here we go. Now, if you'll look carefully here, uh, you've got a vineyard. uh, You'll notice uh, grapes and you'll notice vines. You'll notice leaves. But what's the other thing that you can see? Does anybody know what, what... What else is there? Say again. That's it. A trellis. The trellis is the wires that you see. All right, now I want you to think of discipleship in this way. The trellis and the vine have a a unique relationship. If the trellis isn't there, the vine will grow out onto the ground, but it will become very unhealthy because all the fruit will lay on the ground, it, 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 it will not reproduce as it ought to. It will not be as healthy. It allows the bugs to get on there. There's all kinds of problems that come. So the trellis doesn't cause the growth. The growth has to come from the. So when you look at John 15, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. In other words, your relationship with Christ is a God ordained, God born, God created, uh, uh, God powered event. He's the one that that gives life to you. So that's an organic thing. Churches can't control that. They can foster it, encourage it, but they can't control that. But what churches can be is very good trellises for the believers to grow and bear fruit. So we began building some trellises at Kingsville. I just want to tell you about a simple way to look at it. We decided to look at four core values for our church based on we make disciples because Jesus is worthy, the journey is worth it, and the job is worthwhile. And here are our four core values. The first core value is knowing God. The entire universe exists for this purpose, that God may be known. When you think about it, God made himself known through creation our consciences through his commands perfectly through Christ and evangelistically and worshipfully through the church he's made himself known he wants people to know him so our first work in our church is that people know God that we know God and others know him second is that by knowing him we begin to grow in his likeness third By growing in his likeness, we begin to show other people through the fruit of the Spirit and through worship what he is like and why he should be treasured and valued. And then we value going, making disciples of others, whether that's across the room to reach out to your child or spouse or sibling or across the world to reach a people group that have never heard the gospel, a call to going. We break that down into these parts, knowing God, Rested in Jeremiah, where he says, but the one who boasts, look halfway through the verse, should boast in this, that he understands and knows me. I think I got a little pointer here. Yeah, that he understands and knows me. This is what our boast should be, is that we know the Lord. John seventeen three. this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. Jesus describes eternal life as knowing God. Paul talks about knowing Christ, More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. My personal goal here is to know him. Power of his resurrection, fellowship of his suffering. Let me run through this real quick. Growing, Romans 8, 28 and 29 say, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's growth. Growing in the likeness of Christ. Matthew 10, 24, and 25, a disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. It is enough for a disciple to become like his teacher, a slave like his master. Jesus is telling us we need to be like him. Showing is how the fruit of the Spirit is born through us as the light shines into the lives of others. And in Psalm 37, 4, we delight in the Lord and that shows in our worship and in our work. We worship, spiritual discipline, sacrifice, rejoicing in trials, evangelism, prayer. Those are ways that we show our value of Christ. And, of course, going, you know the verses on that. Go and make disciples of all the nations. And so we kind of outline our whole church activity this way. Our our identity is we make disciples. Why? Why do we do it? Well, Jesus is worthy. The journey of following him is worth it. Whatever we have to leave however we have to live, whatever we endure is worth it and the job of making disciples is worthwhile because that's what Jesus gave his time to and the job he gave to us. Knowing God is our highest value, leading to growing in his likeness, leading to showing what he is like to others and how he is valuable to us and then going and that every person should be in a discipling relationship individually and corporately. So When we get into our next session in the message today, we're going to drill down into Colossians chapter 1 and talk about why aren't we doing this. Because that's the real question. We can talk about disciples. We have these discussions. We have seminars. We can read books. But the question is, why aren't we making disciples? What's hindering us from it? And how can we get to a place where we begin to? So let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for your goodness and your mercy. I want to thank you that you love us and have called us to be your people. And I pray this morning that you will begin to stir our hearts in such a way to see where we lack in making disciples. And Lord, where I lack personally, me, in making disciples, because it is so much easier Lord to talk about than to do. So give us the grace to in Jesus name. Amen. I'm so-